Hidden away in the deep dark woods of the Chattahoochee National Forest was once an isolated mansion that was the object of terror to most of the people who lived in the small town of Somerville, Georgia. A terror that lingers to this day. In the early 1980s, there were rumors of strange things taking place at that house. Occult rituals, devil worship, human sacrifice, and worse. It was the beginning of an era that would hold all of America in its terrible grip. It's since been dubbed the Satanic Panic. Much like what happened at a little town called Salem in 1692, hysteria seized the country on a much larger scale. The panic was spread by fundamentalist Christians, radical religious groups, television talk show hosts, and many otherwise well-intentioned people who feared that a vast underground network of devil worshipers was infiltrating the country. They claimed that Satanists were spreading their evil message through rock and roll music, were kidnapping and abusing children, and might even be responsible for murdering thousands of people who went missing every year. Those missing persons, they believed, had fallen victim to satanic cults who used them for blood sacrifices to the devil. The evidence for such an underground was obvious, they claimed, and pointed to a handful of murders carried out by delinquents in black t-shirts, questionable child abuse cases, and recovered memories of what came to be known as satanic ritual abuse. The end result of the witch hunts of the 1980s and early 90s were scores of people being accused of crimes they didn't commit, the destruction of families caused by repressed memories of things that never happened, and a nationwide panic that Satanists were waiting on every corner to kidnap your kids. Like the witchcraft trials of the 1600s, most of those accused of murder and kidnapping were the other, the people who seemed different had unusual interests, dressed funny, listened to the wrong kind of music, or worse, loved the wrong kind of people. All those people had become susceptible to demonic influences, religious groups claimed, through books, films, and of course, rock and roll music. Churches launched an aggressive campaign against a score of iconic rock acts, accusing them of deliberately planting subliminal satanic messages in their music. Of course, the messages were said to be audible only when the albums were played backward. Well, the media loved adding fuel to the fire. In 1987, Geraldo Rivera produced a national television special on satanic cults, claiming there were over one million Satanists in the United States linked in a highly organized secretive network. That's a quote, by the way. This show, along with others, hosted by people like Oprah Winfrey and Sally Jesse Raphael, were subsequently used by religious groups, psychotherapists, social workers, and law enforcement agencies to claim a satanic conspiracy was committing crimes all across America. They weren't. Eventually, even the people making money and getting high ratings with such stories had to admit there was no hard evidence of a vast underground conspiracy, satanic abuse, or repressed memories of devil cults. In time, the media coverage turned negative, charges against wrongly accused people were dismissed, and a semblance of sanity returned to America. But by then, the damage was already done. The satanic panic of the era opened the doors to conspiracies that are just as deranged, 
about pizza shops that don't have basements, that JFK is still alive and Taylor Swift is giving birth to the Antichrist. But people believe these things, just as they believe that Satanists were kidnapping and sacrificing kids in the 1980s. Getting to the bottom of why and how would require a very different podcast. But let's just say that not everyone believes in wild conspiracies, now or back in the 80s. In fact, there were some who even laughed at those who'd gone off the deep end with the satanic panic, flaunting their lifestyle, their choices, and their beliefs just to get the goat, so to speak, of those who believed the devil was hiding around every corner. But some might say that it was just that kind of devil-may-care attitude that led to the deaths of two men in those Georgia woods in 1982. It was on the chilly night of December 12th that year that their secluded house became a place of torture and bloodshed. The name of the house, Corpsewood Manor, seemed like something right out of a horror novel. But on that dark night, the terror was unbelievably real. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Home, which is written and performed by Troy Taylor and produced and co-hosted by Cody Beck. This is season eight of the American Hauntings podcast. With this episode and the season ahead, we'll be going in search of America's murder houses, where the spirits of the past still linger. Throughout the year, we'll be taking you behind the locked doors of both famous and little-known places where murder, violence, and bloody events have occurred that left a mark on the house as a haunting. That's right, history and hauntings in every single episode. And in this one, we're taking a trip back in time to a very different America than we know today, the early 1980s, when the country was in the middle of one of the strangest times in our history when many believe that dark forces were at work in cities, both large and small. It was a belief that would lead to the deaths of two men from Chicago and end with the lingering spirits of their backwoods hideaway. This episode of Home is called The Murders at Corpsewood Manor. The story of what happened that night in the woods began in Chicago six years before the events that made the house called Corpsewood Manor an infamous place. Dr. Charles Scudder was a professor of pharmacology at Loyola University. He was wealthy, respected, and described as brilliant. He was also described as eccentric and sometimes even sinister, depending on who you talk to about him. At age 56, he was a small man, blonde, handsome, and had an easy smile and charming manners. He was born in Milwaukee County, Wisconsin in 1926. His father, Charles, was a hydraulic and mechanical engineer, and his mother, Eleanor, was a housewife. Both of his parents had gone to college, which was a little unusual at the time. Charles and his sister, Janet, also went to college. At the University of Wisconsin, he studied zoology and languages, and when he was 19, shortly after his father's death, Charles married Helen Hazlett a 21-year-old co-ed at Oberlin College. The marriage didn't last long for one very important reason. Charles was gay, although he wasn't ready to embrace that yet. 
1949, Charles got his master's degree and married again to Bortai Bunting, the daughter of acclaimed British poet Basil Bunting. They became involved in civil rights and anti-death penalty activities and moved on to a farm in Wisconsin where they had four children. This marriage also eventually soured and Charles moved to Chicago. He began teaching at the University of Illinois and then graduated from the Stritch Medical School at Loyola in 1961. He was not a medical doctor, but he acquired his PhD in pharmacology in 1964. This allowed him to begin pursuing his identity as a rebel. He began teaching and then became the assistant director of the Stritch's Institute for the Study of the Mind, Drugs, and Behavior. In that role, the unorthodox professor conducted government-funded experiments with psychoactive drugs like LSD. Shortly after he moved to Chicago, Charles met Joseph Odom. Joe was 12 years younger and hadn't lived Charles's life of privilege. He'd grown up in Cook County and his father, Connie, had only a second grade education and worked in a hotel. His mother, Mary, had attended school until the fourth grade and cleaned houses to make extra money. Joe himself, well, he dropped out of school after the fifth grade, which I guess makes him the highest achiever in the family. But he'd gotten in trouble with the law and spent some time behind bars. While in jail, Joe learned to cook and would become renowned among friends for the simple, delicious meals he could whip up in iron skillets on wood stoves without electricity. Joe moved into Charles's mansion on West Adams Street and served as a housekeeper, cook, errand boy, and companion. He was also his lover, although no one at Loyola knew that Charles was anything other than straight. In those days, he kept his sexual preferences in the closet, and most just considered him to be a little odd, perhaps indulging in the psychedelic drugs that he tested and created. He dyed his hair, kept a pet monkey, and had a pink gargoyle water fountain that squirted water from its mouth. It would go with him from Chicago to Georgia. Those who knew about Joe just assumed he was a housekeeper or a cook. If anyone knew anything about Charles's private life, no one ever spoke up. As time passed, Charles became disillusioned with city and university life. He complained about the students and the backstabbing and the brown nosing that went on in academia. His neighborhood seemed to be deteriorating around him and his home cost more and more in upkeep every year. He began to long to go, quote, back to nature, like he'd done when he lived on that Wisconsin farm. It was the 1970s, after all, and searching out the simple life was all the rage. Charles and Joe began searching for a piece of land in the wild, surrounded by forest and away from the prying eyes of neighbors and townspeople, leaving them free to do their own thing without fear of interference from disapproving busybodies. They failed to consider, though, that the occasional necessary contact such as grocery shopping, would arouse much more curiosity in a small town than in a big city, and that would turn out to be a terrible mistake. But at last, after scouring several southern states, they found a 40-acre parcel of land outside the small town of Somerville, Georgia. It was smack in the middle of the Chattahoochee National Forest and completely isolated. On his 50th birthday in 1976, Charles quit his job, sold off most of his belongings, bought a camper, a Jeep, and a wood stove, 
and then moved with Joe and their two dogs to the woods. Living in the camper, the two began building by hand a strange structure that would become Corpsewood Manor, named for the hauntingly bare trees that dotted their new land. Neither of them had any construction experience, so the house was odd to say the least. The walls of the brick home rose slowly, and by design, they were curved instead of running in a straight line. According to legend, rounded walls kept a homeowner protected from evil, because if it got into your house, it had no corner in which to hide. Well, if that story was true, unfortunately, in their case, it didn't work. The first floor was completed that summer, and they moved into the house. A year later, the second floor of what they called a, quote, elegant mini castle was finished. And even with no electricity, it stayed relatively cool, thanks to the cave-like qualities created by a triple brick wall. A hand pump, candles, stoves with plenty of wood, and an outhouse allowed them freedom from monthly utility bills. The property had a small natural pond, which they planned to convert into a swimming pool, and they created an in-ground cool storage area by burying an old refrigerator. They planted fruit trees and vegetable gardens, ground their own wheat, built a beehive for honey, and foraged for other foods, all of which would eventually get them featured in that old back-to-nature Bible magazine, Mother Earth News. They also built a very special three-story chicken house that didn't make it into the magazine. The chicken house did indeed provide a roost for chickens on the first floor. The second floor was for canned goods, but it was the third floor that's caused speculation for decades, mostly because no photographs of it exist. This floor was a large open room that Charles and Joe referred to as the pink room. The rest of the country would eventually know it as the pleasure chamber. The room, as the name implies, was painted entirely pink. There were no chairs, but there were mattresses covered in pink sheets for sitting on or reclining. It had been designed with guests in mind. Lit by candles and oil lamps, it also contained whips, chains, bondage gear, sex toys, and a collection of pornography. Charles and Joe may have been a couple, but they were not monogamous. Both corresponded with many men, and all the letters centered on one thing, sex. This led Corpsewood Manor to have many visitors, and frequent parties featured Charles's potent homemade wine and likely some of the stashes of psychedelics he pilfered when he left the university. As word spread about the two men living in the forest, locals got curious. In the 1970s and early 80s, being openly gay had been more acceptable in a city like Chicago. But in rural Georgia, a couple had to keep their lifestyle quiet, but word would inevitably spread. And being gay and throwing sex parties wasn't their only secret. They were also official members of the Church of Satan. You know, the one started by Anton LaVey back in the 60s. This could have pretty severe repercussions at a time when the satanic panic was sweeping the country. Well, the sanctuary in the woods was guarded by two giant hounds, mastiffs named Beelzebub, named for a demon, and Arsenath, which was straight out of a H.P. Lovecraft story. Charles and Joe decorated Corpsewood Manor with skulls, 
gothic trappings and even a stained glass window that was decorated with the goat-headed Baphomet. The library was filled with books on the occult. Two horned fang statues resided over the bed. The house's four chimneys were decorated with pentagrams and so on. And while they probably took their Satanism seriously, it's important to understand what exactly that religion, if you want to call it that, meant to them. Like other members of the Church of Satan, the pair didn't literally worship the devil. They were instead atheists who believed that a person had the right to do whatever he wanted as long as he didn't hurt other people. I'm sure it was also a way for Charles especially to thumb his nose at mainstream America. He was known for being eccentric after all. They weren't kidnapping children or sacrificing virgins. They and other actual Satanists simply wanted to celebrate the worldly pleasures they felt were denied to people by society and churches. And they certainly celebrated. The pink room parties happened regularly, and they even kept a logbook listing their guests' sexual preferences. And while these acts were all consensual, the pink room parties are the reason that on the night of December 12, 1982, Corpsewood Manor turned into a blood-soaked scene of horror. Many of the guests at Corpsewood Manor were guests that traveled to Georgia from Chicago, as well as many other places, so they could take part in the wild parties in the woods. But there were also quite a few locals on the guest list. Among those invited for parties and sexual escapades of one kind or another was 17-year-old Kenneth Avery Brock. Kenneth had several sexual encounters at Corpsewood, and eventually he brought his roommate, Samuel Tony West there for more of the same, or at least for the free booze and drugs. Now, Kenneth's life hadn't been easy. He'd been abused and eventually kicked out by his father and began stealing just to eat. If it weren't for Tony West, he would have spent his entire short life on the streets. He was employed occasionally hauling logs from the National Forest property and had met Charles and Joe while hunting deer there back in the fall. He had, of course, heard about the two gay men who lived in the castle in the woods, but unlike the adults in the area, local teenagers knew the men were free with sharing their wine and some said their drugs, too. Unknown to their parents, there were a lot of teenagers who partied at Corpsewood Manor. While there, Kenneth had consumed a lot of Charles's mescaline-laced wine and his inhibitions were lowered more than he expected. When Charles performed oral sex on him, Kenneth didn't stop him. While he later expressed anger and embarrassment over the encounter, it didn't keep him from returning for more and bringing Tony with him on that fateful night. Tony West's life had been even more problematic than that of his younger roommate. He'd shot and killed his two-year-old nephew when he was 13 while playing with a loaded gun. He spent the next five years in a mental institution because of it. His prospects were no better when he was released. He spent time in jail and couldn't find work because of his record. He'd allowed Kenneth to move into his derelict trailer with him more for the money than for friendship. Then in the late fall of 1982, Kenneth told him about the, quote, queer devil worshipers who didn't mind sharing their booze and drugs with friends and strangers alike. Never one to turn down a free high, Tony went with his friend out to Corpsewood Manor one night. When he got there, though, Tony was not in the partying mood. Well, 
not that kind of party anyway. He not only strongly objected to the homosexual activity that was going on, but he managed to convince Kenneth that Charles Scudder had taken advantage of it. He worked on Kenneth over the next several days, finally getting him angry enough to go along with Tony's hastily concocted plan to return to Corpsewood and rob Charles and Joe. On Sunday, December 12th, they decided to put their plan into action. Since having a weapon along seemed like a good idea, Kenneth borrowed his mother's 22 caliber rifle for rabbit hunting, he told her. And then the two went to the trailer of Tony's sister, Myra, to watch football on television with their 19-year-old son, Joey Wells, and a girl he'd just met that day, Teresa Hudgens. Now, Kenneth had known Teresa for several years, but she'd accepted a date with Joey when she met him earlier that day. His mother had picked her up and brought her over to the trailer. When Kenneth and Tony got ready to leave and go riding around, they invited the couple to go with them. Now, there's been debate over the years about whether Joey Wells knew what was going to happen that evening. He always denied it, but there's a lot of doubt about that denial. However, there is no doubt Teresa had no idea about what was going to happen. Kenneth and Tony started driving with the couple in the back seat. They stopped for gas and cigarettes, and then Kenneth told them they were going to the top of the mountain to the devil worshippers' home. When Teresa asked about them, Kenneth assured her they were just a couple of gay guys who made homemade wine. On the drive, all four began huffing a noxious mix of paint thinner, glue, and alcohol. When they arrived at the house in the woods, everything seemed normal. Charles came out to greet them, and then they climbed the ladder up to the pink room where they drank wine and continued huffing the chemicals they'd brought from the car. At some point during this drug and alcohol-fueled haze, Kenneth got down to business and retrieved the rifle from the car. Charles was held at knife point in order to give up the fortune that Kenneth and Tony assumed he had. I mean, the guy did live in a castle after all. But Charles wasn't afraid. He actually laughed and said, bang, bang. One thing everyone said about Charles was that he had the uncanny, almost hypnotic ability to persuade people to do what he wanted. There had been times at Corpsewood when locals had shown up with the intent to cause trouble, and Charles had always managed to get them to leave. He had a keen sense of what motivated people, so perhaps he knew what motivated Kenneth and thought he could defuse it. And he was right. For a while, Kenneth laughed and put down the gun. They chatted and drank for a little while, but when Charles got up to adjust the lamp, Kenneth grabbed him by the hair and once again put the knife to his neck. Charles laughed again. What kind of game do you want to play? He said, I'll play. In response, Kenneth shoved him onto a mattress and tied his arms behind his back. He demanded to know where their money was, and Charles honestly responded, they didn't have any. They conducted all their business with checks and rarely had cash in the house. Kenneth yelled in rage and tied him up tighter. At this point, Teresa was in a panic. Tears streamed down her cheeks as she pleaded, don't hurt nobody, let's go. Always the concerned host, Charles asked her before he was gagged if she was all right. Teresa responded in shock, you better worry about yourself. Well, at that point, Teresa and Joey bolted down the ladder. Tony followed them with the gun and ordered them to return, claiming he didn't want to hurt anyone, but he would if he had to. 
Joey talked Tony into getting to the car instead, but the engine wouldn't start. Tony took that as a sign that the evening events were, quote, meant to happen. In the pink room, Kenneth and Tony continued to demand the location of some money. Getting nowhere with Charles, Kenneth decided to look for Joe Odom, who was unaware of what was going on. Joe was surprised in the main house's kitchen and was shot four times. Kenneth also killed the couple's two dogs, who never stirred from their warm spot beside the wood stove. Bound and gagged, Charles was led from the pink room to the main house where he saw his partner's body. His last words were supposedly, I ask for this, before Tony West shot him five times in the head. What he meant by those cryptic final words is just one of the mysteries left behind by the brutal slain in the woods of Georgia. While Charles was dying on the floor of the house, Kenneth was yelling about how rich they were going to be. He ran wildly up and down the stairs, ransacking the house, looking for the money that was the reason he killed the two men. He turned out to be very disappointed. They found a few coins, some jewelry, a leather jacket, a pair of handcuffs, bottles of wine, a gold-plated dagger, some silver candelabras, and a pistol. There were expensive items in the house, but the heavy furniture, statues of demons, and satanic artwork were either too heavy or too weird for the pair to want to take. Teresa Hudgens didn't play any part in the looting of the house, and while Joey Wells denied playing any role, Teresa later stated that he did take some items for himself. When Kenneth proposed burning down the house to hide the evidence, it was Joey who pointed out that a fire would draw attention. They fled the scene in Charles Scudder's Jeep, which had white pentagrams painted on the doors, so it wasn't exactly going to blend in. After telling their families they were heading to Florida, they started driving and looking for a less conspicuous getaway car. They found one in a rest stop near Beniva, Mississippi. It belonged to a Navy lieutenant named Kirby Phelps. They only planned to tie him to a tree and steal his car, but things went sideways. Phelps allowed himself to be cuffed, and he stumbled through the woods and over to a fence with Tony at his side. While Kenneth transferred their belongings to the man's car, Tony attempted to cuff Phelps to a pine tree. He had to unlock the left cuff to do so, and when he did, Phelps threw a punch at him. Tony immediately shot the man three times in the head. They left Phelps in the woods without his wallet and identification while they drove off in his car. By the time the Navy man's body was discovered on December 15th, they were long gone. Meanwhile, back in Georgia, Raymond Williams followed Mountain View Road until the pavement ran out, and then he continued on a dirt road into the woods. He followed the first turn off and pulled to a stop in front of Corpsewood Manor. Raymond had dropped by to tell Charles and Joe that a mutual friend Roy Hood had recently died. Raymond had visited the pair two days before on what had been the last day of their lives to tell them that Roy was then in the hospital. When Raymond looked around, he didn't see their Jeep. Assuming it was a grocery shopping day, he left without approaching the house. He didn't notice anything out of the ordinary that morning. The next day though, well, that would be altogether different. 
When Raymond returned the following day and saw the Jeep was still missing, he became uneasy. As he walked to the house, he saw the side door was standing open. And then he saw the blood. He fled to his car and sped down the mountain to call the police. It took Chattooga County Sheriff's deputies nearly a half hour to traverse the mountain roads and arrive on the scene. As they entered the house, their noses were filled with the stench of filth and death. They found the four bodies, the two men and the two dogs, and were soon reeling from discovering one secret after another inside Corpsewood Manor. These men were used to the smell of death, but inside the house, it was so much worse. The sickening reek of rotting flesh was combined with unwashed bodies and the taint of spoiling food. A thick cloud of black flies seemed to blanket everything. Aside from the blood and other substances from the murder, Charles, Joe, and the entire house were dirty, unwashed, and unkempt. Once they got past the smell, the investigators were overwhelmed by the contents of the house. The whips, handcuffs, sex toys, black candles, pornography, the sexual letters, the satanic art, all of it unnerved them. When they discovered skulls all over the place, their first thoughts were there were more victims, but this wasn't the case. While some were medical specimens, others were replicas, and all were used for decoration. Eventually, it was decided that flashlights were not enough to cut through the gloom in the house, so a generator was brought in so electric bulbs could be arranged to brighten the scene. The bodies of the men and the dogs were bagged and carried out to a pickup truck that was used as a hearse for a trip to the Summerfield Funeral Home where the autopsies would be performed. Removing the bodies did nothing to end the traffic that had started arriving at the crime scene though. Reports of the horrific discovery had gone out over the police radio, been picked up by the press and spread to the public. Hundreds followed the dirt road back to Corpsewood Manor to catch a glimpse of what was happening or maybe to bring home a souvenir or two. And many would come to regret that later on. On the same day the bodies were found, Charles Scudder's Jeep was found abandoned in Louisiana. At the time, though, the police had no suspects, nor did they even have a clear picture of what had happened at the crime scene. The first break in the case came from a telephone call to the sheriff's office by Teresa Hudgens. Her family had convinced her to turn herself in and tell the police what had happened at Corpsewood Manor. Sheriff Gary McConnell immediately took her statement, and murder warrants were filed for Tony West and Kenneth Brock, who were then in Texas. They'd been on the run for days running out of money and bickering about everything. Tony wanted to go to Mexico, but Kenneth refused. They contemplated more robberies and more murders. Finally, on December 18th, they decided to go to a topless bar and cool off, but the mostly naked girls and the alcohol just frazzled their nerves to the breaking point. Tony told Kenneth to leave, and the younger man didn't need to be told twice. He hitched his way back to Georgia. Ironically, one of the drivers who picked him up was an off-duty police officer who had no idea the young man in his car was wanted for three murders. Kenneth called home when he made it to Marietta, Georgia and asked his mother to come and pick him up. The local police were quickly made aware of his plans, but before anyone could get to him at the gas station, he told employees that he was wanted for murder and asked them to call the police. 
He was arrested around 6.30 p.m. and was soon in custody in Somerville. Meanwhile, perhaps fearing Kenneth would get caught and confess, Tony changed his destination from Mexico to Oklahoma. He made it as far as Missouri, changed direction, and then headed to Chattanooga, Tennessee. Much to his surprise, the stress, loneliness, and isolation seemed worse than prison. He ran out of gas a short distance from the Georgia line and walked through a cold rain to the nearby Palomino Club Lounge. He was soaking wet when he saw the police car sitting in the parking lot. He turned himself in to a Chattanooga police officer named Gene Haas on Christmas Eve. During the trials that followed, the stories of the murders became fodder for a press hungry for a sensational story. Sex, murder, Satanism, what else could they ask for? Unfortunately, in the mess that followed, Charles Scudder and Joseph Odom were victimized once again as being two openly gay men with an interest in the occult. In the 1980s, they were savaged by the newspapers, local gossip, and defense attorneys for their two killers. In the end, though, both men were found guilty. Kenneth Brock received three consecutive life sentences while Tony West was sentenced to death. His death sentence was later overturned on appeal, and today, both men remain behind bars. But that's not quite the end of the story. It wasn't long before rumors began to circulate about Corpsewood Manor. People claimed the house was haunted even before a fire destroyed most of the building's non-brick portions. Even to this day, those who visit the ruins of Corpsewood Manor say that they hear gunshots, weeping, cries for help, the barking of dogs, and even eerie music being played. But that wasn't the worst of it. The worst thing attached to the house was the curse. It started with Agnew Myers, an estate specialist who cleaned, valued, and authenticated many of the antiques that were removed from Corpsewood Manor. A winged, horned creature holding a mirror was missing part of a hand, but Myers restored it. He also cleaned up other items like a Mephistopheles statue made from bronze and a golden harp. Those items were sold to a man named Bobby Lee Cook. On the day that he took the items home, his wife, June, immediately banished them from the house. As she was carrying them out to the trash, she fell down and broke her leg. Many other items in the house were also sold or given away. Many of those items were then destroyed, sold again, or returned once people realized where they'd come from and what might be attached to them. Among those items were devil's head candlesticks, books, bells, knives, and several paintings, including a self-portrait of Charles Scudder. The man who bought it was so unnerved by it that he kept it out of sight for years before he finally sold it. A firearms dealer from Atlanta purchased the Baphomet stained glass piece and a massive carved bed. When he bought the items, he'd recently married a woman who had once worked for him as a security guard. He quickly put his new wife on his company's board and by the time of the murders had started a new company with her that sold kits that turned firearms into unregistered machine guns. Soon after they purchased the items from Corpsewood Manor, the company was raided by the ATF and both were arrested and charged with federal gun crimes after their guns were traced 
to robberies, murders, and at least one school shooting. The wife believed the items he'd bought from Corpsewood had been cursed and blamed them for their arrests and their subsequent divorce. She shattered the Baphomet glass and burned the other items, including that massive antique bed in a bonfire. Meanwhile, the remains of Corpsewood Manor became a hangout for teenagers, curiosity seekers, alleged devil worshipers, paranormal investigators, and those who really just wanted to pay their respects to Charles and Joe. As the years passed, the side of the house became harder and harder to find, but they continued to come. A few unwise visitors have carried away a brick with them from the crumbling remains of the building, only to find that bad luck follows with it. The legends say there have been car wrecks, deaths, and mysterious fires linked to those who have carried away souvenirs. The physical remains of the house, it's been said, are cursed by the horrible events that occurred there. Is that truth or legend? Who knows? But if you are one of the adventure seekers who wants to visit the ruins of Corpsewood Manor, be respectful of the tragedy that occurred there years ago. And don't bring anything home with you. Just in case. And there's more ahead for the show, so stay with us through this message from our sponsor. I am ready when you are. Okay. Yeah, that sounds good. Okay. Uh, all right. I'm all set. Well, welcome back to American Hauntings. And let me say thanks to all of you who have returned for episode number two of our new season. I'm the writer and narrator and creator of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. And with me is our producer and co-host, Cody Beck. Hey, I'm working like on my that. baseball announcement. I was just gonna say, I feel like I'm it's almost up the, to the plate. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, uh, Troy. I'm I'm recording. This is the first time I've recorded an episode in my uh, new apartment since new I've apartment. Moved. Yeah, um, I'm not gonna tell people where it is because I've learned that now we can't do that. We're too we're too uh, <laughs> we're too many listeners. Um, but I, I will say I've been doing research on the building. It um, is one twelve. No, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> just kidding. So. Um, I've been doing research on the building though for a particular reason, just to see if there's been any um, anything mm-hmm. reported or anything in any activity, and I haven't found anything. Yet, but I'm going to keep digging because uh, I think there's a valid reason to kind well, of. Well, it has it has potential. That's all I'll say. I yeah. won't go into any further than that. Yes, but I appreciate. It. I really wish I, I wish we were smaller again, and I could <laughs> those details so somebody could tell me. But uh, we can't do that kind of thing anymore. Nah, so. probably better not. Yeah, yeah just uh, to be safe. Yeah. Well, how how are you been doing, man? What's going good. on? Good. Good. Just been busy. Been busy. Well, I we both were a couple yeah. weeks ago, and I when I did that bonus episode i thanked everybody for uh coming out to dead of winter and bringing us all the stuff and i don't even remember if i told you this or not but there was too much food to fit into one truck 
Nice. From the, from the thing. So they had to come back and with the second and do another load later on in the day. So that was, that was good. So, yeah. you know, I felt good about that. You it's know, getting really, bigger and bigger. Yeah. We put something together nice and it was a lot of fun. I think everybody, uh, as far as I know, had fun that day. I didn't hear everybody tell me they didn't, but um, yeah, I think it was a good time. So yeah, I know I had fun. Um, but and also uh, thanks to everybody who came that day and now online have done it, too, and picked up my new book. That was fun too to get to. Um, you know, I had a lot of people who normally order them through the mail who were there. So that was fun. I enjoyed that, too. Getting ready, getting able, being able to see everyone. Good. Right. God, I can't even talk. <laughs> um, but the only other thing and what's keeping me so busy and why I sending Cody messages and saying, can we do this earlier rather than later today? Yeah. Because um, I'm because I needed one more thing to do, you of know, course. in addition to events now that it's getting to be spring, they're picking up and, you know, working on books and everything else. Um, I the on March the 9th, I'll be opening the American Oddities Museum at the Mineral Springs in Alton. So it used to be the Soul Asylum. It's been closed for a while. Um, Dave. Uh, not only was running that, and um, he is kind of stepping back there. He opened another location for their uh, It's Raining Zen stores, and his office is going to be there. So he will not be around the minerals so much. And so I took it over. So uh, I'm currently revamping the place yeah. uh, completely, top to bottom kind of thing. So uh, we'll be moving all of our dinner events into the museum. And so if you, you know, if you come to a dinner event and it will be included, you know, you can wander the museum for an hour before we start if you want to. Um, so we're doing that on March 9th. I'll be signing books. We got some other things that we're working on too. Um, also, if uh, you're, you might think about, if you're thinking about coming on March 9th and you want the day to go on longer, uh, later that evening, I've got to go to the River Road Tour. And if you sign up for the River Road Tour that night, then you get to come and see the museum for free. Mm -hmm. So it's a, you know, I guess a win-win. <laughs> Like it depends on how you look at it, uh, well, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, no. Well, first off, uh, congrats on that. That's yeah, it's gonna news. be fun, man. I think yeah. that's super sweet. Um, I think you and I can talk about this offline, but I think if I don't know exactly what you're gonna have in there, I know what's been in there, I know what's kind of moved around and stuff. But if you ever want to do like live demonstrations, test out the torture stuff, I will put myself out. Oh there. yeah, yeah. Really well, fun. Yeah, as far as torture stuff goes, it's we're gonna keep a couple of the 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 poor prop like items for that people love oh. for photos you like the guillotine and stuff yes. but as far as a lot of the you know replica torture stuff uh it's kind of going <sighs> okay, so going away gonna, so if you'd like if you'd like some of it to take home let me know because <laughs> i can probably send some of it home with you i think there's some whips and some other stuff in there if you oh, i got an, i got enough oh okay well yeah, yeah I, I i didn't know if you need anything new or if you know just had a, <laughs> right. you were good on what you had so, i appreciate it you know so but anyway, so that's that's kind of like my big news for the week. And also, I guess, you know, um, the, if you're a Patreon supporter, you got to hear the first episode of the new uh, Dead Men Do Tale Tales uh, Patreon series. Uh, our first one started this week. Uh, we normally do like one story, you know, that carries through the entire season. But this time we're doing two different stories at the same time yeah, and, again, and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is kind of fun. It's fun switching back and forth. I'm having mm -hmm. fun writing it and putting it together. Um, Ed Gein grosses me out big time. And, uh, but you know, you, you face your, you face the grossness sometimes and you, you face just your demons. It. Yeah. And, uh, and, and the movie, 
the first the first Texas Chainsaw movie has always disturbed me greatly. So I'm not sure exactly why I picked like the two most disturbing things I could think of. I mean, if we'd thrown John Wayne Gacy in there, that probably would have sent me over the edge because that's the other one that freaks me out. But anyway, I put those in there and um, it has been a lot of fun. So if you'd like to check out the new podcast uh, or the new season of the podcast, we actually have three seasons already that you can binge and then this is the fourth season um just go to patreon.com slash american hauntings and that will um that will take you to um take you to the the show and you can get signed up it doesn't cost much it's a it's like the price of a burger or something you know or less you know and you get stuff in the mail and discounts and all kinds of stuff so anyway check it out if you get a chance Awesome. Yeah. It, it seems like you're, uh, by choosing those two topics, you're like searching for a new rush or a new. Or <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that's about. Has it been? Uh, yeah. It's like you? horrible things. Um, let's pick two really bad things and talk about those. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know exactly why I chose those, but it is, it's been interesting so far. So that's the good news. So awesome. anyway, um, I don't, I don't have texts this time. Okay. Uh, I, I did them all on the I caught up on everything with that bonus episode. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you have any reviews that you want to work on. We do have new Patreon members. I think you have some and I have some. Yeah, uh, we both have them. And so I don't we I don't know if you want to throw a, those a, out there, too, because yeah, I've got, got, a, I got a short. Oh, list right here. boy. Um, this is not a short list. Okay. Do you um, want to do you want to do it then? Just in well, case missed anybody. I usually spread them out. No, but. they're we don't have duplicates. OK. So I don't know how you want to do this. Why don't I just do the ones I have here? How's okay. that sound? That works. All right. So these are shout outs to people who have recently joined our Patreon. And um, hopefully, uh, if you guys are interested, you'll get a shout out on the show too. But uh, so I've got uh, Carrie, Ashley, Amanda, Tia, Disco Von Doom, which Ooh. I like that one. Brooke, Holzer, Stella, Jenny, Brent, Sheila. Kelly, Patrick, C.E., Jamie, Peter, Pat, Brittany, Samantha K., Kayla, and Shoeboy. So those are all the ones that I have right now. Uh, they, they have recently joined our Patreon. So um, if you want, if you, you listen to our, you know, our little preview of it, I think a lot of people did uh, and jumped in and are now listening to the show. So if you did and you're interested, uh, like I said, check us out at patreon.com slash American Awnings. Awesome. So, yeah. On to uh, you. I, I, uh, maybe we've said these before. I don't know, but I just, I'll, I'll double up rather than not mention somebody on the show, but I have, okay. uh, 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 thanks again also to, uh, Vicka, Peyton, Teresa, Denise, James, Catherine, and Crystal. All right. All right. Good. So, so we didn't, we got I didn't think we, I didn't think we had any crossover, so I think we got them all. So, yeah. uh, but if you do have, um, you know, any, any messages, any texts, any questions that you want to send us, uh, we don't forget about the haunt line. Uh, it's 217-791-7859. Quite a few that I did on the bonus episode. It was like half the show. Uh, so if you've got anything and you've got a question, I mean, sometimes I just answer them because sometimes they're questions that people don't aren't really looking for something on the show. So I just answer them. Otherwise, uh, we're happy to, to to get into stuff on the show. If you got questions about stuff, send it over. So absolutely. Right. I do have yeah. a listener review. Okay, cool. Um, this one is titled Never Gets Old, and it's from Candy Ma'am. Yeah, well, they're not talking about me. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> um, I'm feeling old lately, but that's just <laughs> movie stuff. Um, 
It says your podcast sets the bar for all other podcasts. Troy, your passion for telling stories with as much truth and accuracy as possible is refreshing and rare. You are equal parts sleuth and storyteller, and I never get <laughs> bored listening to the podcast. Cody, I've listened from the beginning. The quality of the podcast gets better every season as you learn and grow, and your commentary and questions are just as important to the podcast as Troy's stories. You never fail to make me chuckle out loud or get answers to questions I want to ask. Can't wait for the rest of the season. My only regret is that I'm all caught up, so now I have to find something else to look yeah, to while waiting for the next bummer. episode to drop. And so far, I haven't found anything comparable to American Hauntings. Thanks for all you do. Well, cool. thank you very much. That's nice. Yeah. That's a very nice Very nice. Story. Yeah. I appreciate it. Uh, oh, boy. Okay. Um, so this is an interesting story. Yeah. I, I didn't know how familiar you were with this one. Um, so I'm good. Good. Well, that's, that's I, mean, I was hoping I, you know, when I put the season together, you know, I kind of mixed in what I felt were, you know, some famous stories, but then I tried to do a lot of ones that maybe hadn't already been done to death. And, and maybe, maybe this has been covered in a lot of places. I, I don't know. Uh, but I've always thought it was an interesting story. So, uh, I wanted to include it. And I, I did get like the for the intro, the opening part before we got to the, you know, welcome to American Hauntings part. Um, it is kind of an overview of the satanic panic. I know we've talked about it before. So that's something we don't have to do to death. But you, you, the thing you got to remember is that that's that's when I grew up. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's when I was in, you know, high school and late 80s and into the early 90s. You know, that was that was were growing up times for me. So I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard about that stuff all the time. And 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 since you know me, you know that my interests have always been the same, mm-hmm. which, you know, tended to attract negative interest. In those days. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 So I there, there, if, yeah, there I were some if, questions. Oh, yeah. I figured I know that you, I know you would have probably had the same interest regardless. But I do wonder if growing up during that time, if that did help, you know, did it help shape or do you think it helped push you even further into it being like trying to be a rep, even more of a rep? Oh, yeah, I think or? it probably interested me even more because I think it exposed me to stuff that, you know, because of things I wasn't supposed to be uh-huh. watching, listening to, reading, whatever. Of course, then I wanted to read it. Yeah. Uh, but I, I still remember, I mean, the the book that started it all and and just if that interested you and you didn't know much about it, just to speaking to everybody out there, there is a documentary that's available right now on Amazon called Satan Wants You. Mm-hmm. And it is um, a documentary that is not only about the the satanic panic in general, but it's also largely about the book that really started it. And that was a book called Michelle Remembers. And I remember when and I think maybe I've talked about this on the show before, but I remember reading that book at a paperback of it. And it had, you know, this black cover. You know, they always had those step back covers. The old paperbacks did. No, you mm-hmm. don't. But no, you've probably seen them now. Yeah. Right. Yes. So this one had like a circle in the middle that had a little girl's face on it. And then when you opened it up on the inside, there was a little girl sitting sur- holding a teddy bear surrounded by candles and like Satan's face was looming in the background. Nice. And it was this long story. I mean, a whole book about this woman that claimed that she had, um, you know, her family had turned her over to a satanic cult when she was like five and she didn't remember it. And now her repressed memories had come out thanks to her psychiatrist. And she was remembering all these things. And um, again, it was it's one of those stories where nobody whoever was writing this 
absurd piece of fiction is what it turned out to be. Didn't have any way to really check historical <laughs> records at the yeah. time. And then, you know, you watch this documentary and they just rip this thing apart about how there's no way it could have happened. And, you know, I mean, you had all these real shady people involved in it and stuff. And the psychiatrist and the patient ended up leaving their respective spouses and ran off together. And I mean, it's crazy. It's a crazy story, but it's a it's a great documentary. Uh, so if you get a chance, it's, it's worth it. I, I think I bought a copy of it because I'd wanted to see it so bad. It's really worth watching, uh, even if you just rent it for a couple of bucks. But anyway, so I, I just I wanted to cover that because I felt like that it plays a role in the story because I'm not sure how serious these guys were. I mean, I, I honestly don't, you know, and again, we talked about, you know, the Church of Satan and things back when we did the Jane Mansfield episode, mm -hmm. back when we did the Haunted Hollywood season. And, you know, Anton LaVey, who started the Church of Satan, was, was a showman, man. He was just having a good time. He was putting on a show. Yeah. He was giving the people what they wanted, you know, in the words of the descriptions of Al Capone, you know, he was just giving people something fun to do. It was the late sixties and people were into that stuff. And, um, you know, these guys were official members of his church. Well, if you were an official member of the church of Satan, you don't actually believe in Satan. Right. Not, not literally. It's not meant to be taken literally. You know, you're not really devil worshipers. You just go in for all the fun trappings and stuff. And I mean, for all the number of gargoyles and things I have around my office, it sounds a lot like their house, except my house is clean. Right. That house right. was not. I don't know how to have a chicken shed either, uh, you know, or any of that. But I'm just saying the decorations and stuff seemed completely over the top to, you know, the locals, the kids who came and hang out, would hang out at the at Corpsewood Banner. And then when the, the law came in after the murders, you know, they're seeing all this stuff and just freaking out because we are in the middle of this, you know, wild time of everybody thinking devil worshipers were hiding under every rock, yeah. you know? So, and so, yeah. So, um, and, and you started to mention this a little bit later, um, which made, which made, reminded me that I really want to try Comet pizza sometime. Um, but it seems like what? this just kind of, I just want to try the pizza. Um, <laughs> oh, <laughs> gotcha. um, but it does seem like this, uh, you know, I, I've only seen a couple instances of it, but, uh, so I don't have a lot of data points to work with here, but it kind of seems like, uh, some type of satanic panic or something at least comes back around. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of how I wrapped it up. Just saying that, you know, that that we we see all these things. We've seen them before and we just keep doing the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it started out with the witch hunts back in Salem and all over New England. And, you know, by this time, it was the same kind of people are being targeted by usually religious groups normally. Mm -hmm. um, and then it, and then the religious groups start it and then it gets grabbed a hold of by the general public public and just becomes this big thing and people just keep talking about it. And yeah, you know, I talked to, I just mentioned, you know, I, well, I, I didn't name names, but I mean, obviously it's your QAnon and Pizzagate and mm -hmm. all this crap, you know, it's just, it, it's the same stuff. It just keeps coming back over and over again. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And social media just makes it worse. And yeah. Easier yeah. To and I think, yeah, that. I think, I mean, for people who weren't alive, it's hard for them to imagine seeing like TV talk shows doing hour after hour of, you know, satanic kidnappers and stuff mm. and and people taking it seriously. I mean, well, it's hard for us people who try to have rational thought. It's hard for us to believe that. 
Right. Um, other people, though, uh, you know, I'm, there are entire news networks dedicated to this kind of thing, mm-hmm. you know, except it's just in different directions. Um, so it's it's, you know, it the more things change, the more they stay the same. I sure. Guess. Yeah. You know, we just have new outlets for it now. It's, you know, it's on, you know, Facebook and TikTok and, and stuff rather than, than on Sally, Jesse, Raphael, which I don't even know whatever happened to her, you know? <laughs> so, but, you know, she was one of the leading, you know, people who were involved, her and Geraldo, they love that stuff. Yeah. You know? I, I have watched the Geraldo stuff. Yeah. Like you that. can find that stuff on YouTube. You can yeah. look it up. I've, I've watched the episode again and I've just said, Sitting there going, oh my God. Because I remember when it was on originally. I, yeah. I saw it when it was on, you know, and I still remember the one when he had all the white supremacists on and somebody threw a chair and broke his nose. Uh, look that one up if you get a chance. Okay, That's okay. a good one. So, uh, but yeah, I remember when all that stuff was on. And it's just, it's crazy that. You know, that's what was going on in the country at the time. That that's what seemed important, you know. Right. So, right. Not the Russians with nuclear weapons and you know, we're in the middle of the Cold War, but this is this is what <laughs> seems important, yeah, to people. Oh uh, yeah, like, kind of like now, and you know, well, let's not worry about what the Russians are doing. Let's worry about Taylor Swift. Yeah. You know what I mean? I it makes it's crazy. It's it's just what we do here, I guess. Yeah, you mentioned how some people kind of um uh, took this as an opportunity to like flaunt that they like. You sure. Know, yeah. And I think that's like, what these guys were doing. I, I think yes. they were having fun with it and they were shocking people, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, it was easy. I mean, they wanted to get out of Chicago. We're talking about a time, not exactly an enlightened uh, time period if you're gay and you know in Chicago it was okay you could get away with that mm-hmm. but now they've moved to the middle of BFE Georgia oh, okay. and I'm telling you this is not you know unless it's a, you know unless it's deliverance this is not a good place for that yeah. kind of thing and <laughs> I mean, um, is it yet even yeah <laughs> well yeah probably not so it's you know it's a time and place and they thought well we're going to have all this you know this privacy and they mm-hmm. found out they didn't and I think that you know, while maybe they weren't flaunting that at first, they were definitely flaunting. Look how weird we are. Yeah. You know, sure. with all our stuff, with our Jeep, with the pentagrams <laughs> on the doors and stuff, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's just, it's, I just think they were having a, I was a sense of humor. I, I, that I get the idea that Charles had, especially, I think Joe was a little more laid back, a little quieter, but the sense of humor that he had was this, you know, Hey, look at us. We're going to do whatever we want to do, you mm-hmm. know? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking uh, like that's why I had a good time at, at Dead of Winter because um that was a place where I I got a lot of compliments on my maybe today Satan so oh, yeah, that I right was right right. Um, that's and that's funny. like a group of people that are like, "Oh, we get it. That's hilarious." You get it. Yeah, it's just being funny. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah. like uh gas station attendants and things are telling me like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, buddy." Uh, <laughs> I know. I know. And, um and, but but you see, I know that they were trying to like kind of make fun of it and flaunt it and stuff. But then the argument always comes back. It's like, no, that's what he wants for us to not believe he exists. Oh, yeah. And I it's don't, the greatest yeah. trick. Yeah, well, and like I said, if these guys were members of the Church of Satan, they didn't believe in right. Satan, not not literally. So, right. yes. you know, they it was more of the idea of just, you know, do whatever you want to. And that's essentially the the motto for the church mm-hmm. of satan Absolutely. just don't hurt anybody exactly. you know so yeah just put a lot he says a lot fancier but yes i love it um, right exactly <laughs> uh, and yeah if and if for anybody that's interested i've i've uh mentioned this one before but the devil in all his works troy i think is my, oh. fav- my favorite book of yours um i i love it so much so check that out if anybody's interested in learning more about uh, at least the devil 
Uh, okay, so yeah, the death of these two men in the Georgia woods, December twelfth, uh, Corpsewood Manor. So, so they said it was because of the trees around. Because there, of the trees, was, was it? Well, also and I'm sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm also sure that that was a name that would get people's attention. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I'm sure that their friends who came down to visit from Chicago and stuff, you know, and they told them they had a house called Corpsewood Manor. I'm sure they, they got a chuckle out of yeah, it, yeah, you yeah. know, and it seemed gloomy. It seemed, you know, dark and, you know, I mean, I get it. I, I get why you would do that. If you're, you know, if that's the thing that you're putting together, that's yeah. the persona that you want. Um, I'm sure that had a lot to do with it, but yeah. uh, allegedly it had to do with, <laughs> it trees. had to do with the trees. Yes. Got so. it. And uh, so Charles Scudder is uh, at the Institute for the study of mind, drugs and behavior. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so he was kind of like a Timothy Leary type guy. It was yeah. the seventies, you know, yeah. it was the seventies. So people were doing that kind of thing as a college I mean, that's when people still had departments of parapsychology and stuff. Right. So, you know, just experimenting with LSD seemed OK yes. on campus at the time. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's really what he had going on. But he'd, he'd also had that kind of um, thing where he was when he was briefly married to his second wife. Or was it his first? I can't remember. But they went out into the woods and started a back to nature farm in Wisconsin because, again, you know, they were a little early on it. But again, when they do it in Georgia, it's the 70s. Mm -hmm. And back to nature was a cool thing to do. You know, right. there were communes and all kinds of stuff. So these guys were going to go out there. They were going to have no bills. You know, they weren't going to have any bills because they're going to use an outhouse and they're, they're off you know, the grid. local water. They're going to be off the grid. And, you know, and it got written up in the, there was there's a feature article about them. And you can find it online uh, in Mother Earth News, which is still in print. But um, for, you know, for your all your going off the grid needs, uh -huh. uh, that's that's essentially it's, you know, back to nature magazine kind of thing. And uh, they wrote up an article about the, the their their house and everything because they were I mean, you know, um, Charles had a reputation for, you know, he had a good reputation as a, you know, as a professor and stuff. So he had a name, um, but he was just a, you know, a unique individual. <laughs> Yeah, I, I've, often, I've often wondered about the, you know, the people that are really, really smart, and really, really unique, um, mm -hmm. them getting like pure weapons grade LSD and stuff like sure, how, how sure. that might impact your, you know, your. Yeah. Brain. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, growing mushrooms and all that kind of stuff, yeah. you know, uh, just the, the psychedelic thing, I'm sure remained a big part of what they were doing because. They were making their own wine out there and he was, uh, you know, adding in mescaline to yeah. the wine. So, you know, definitely not your average wine tasting if you went <laughs> to Charles and Joe's house, you know. So, yes. yes. Oh, gosh. Um, so, yeah, just like I said, they had lots of parties. And then uh, I guess. So what do you what do you say this this? kids there and uh, yeah i think kenneth is the one who wandered in first i think just... he w had gone out and gotten involved in this uh probably a lot to drink probably some drugs um and you know while he would claim that oh hey hey i'm not gay i'm not gay he kept coming back you so know just um, of... right right yeah. so i mean again it it was that time period i mean you mm -hmm. just you know that wasn't a normal thing uh, for most people they didn't see it that way at the time, mainstream audiences did not see it that way. Right. Um, 
not in, especially in a small town in, you know, the Chattahoochee edge of the Chattahoochee National Forest in Georgia. Um, so and then, you know, he goes back and he starts telling his buddy who he's been staying with, uh, old Tony there, who, you know, had a criminal record and everything and is telling him, well, hey, you know, these guys got a castle out there and man, you should come out. They, they give away drinks and drugs. Everything's free. And then he comes out there and comes up with the idea that they should rob these guys because, I mean, hey, they're living in a castle, so they must have money. Must these have. guys. And, you know, they did have money, but not there at the house. As he said, I mean, he told Charles Soto, listen, man, we don't we don't use cash. We just write checks for everything. Yeah. So it's kind of like now with people just use their debit cards or their, yeah, exactly. you know, for everything. The same thing back then. They just use their checks for everything. So they didn't keep any cash. And, um, you know, that he tried. Charles tried to defuse the situation a couple of times and almost did. But, you know, I think, you know, enough drugs, enough enough booze and yeah. you know and you're already you know you're already coming out there and you're you know i don't know Malicious i mean intent. I, yeah there's there's that and i also think there was some you know bi curious kind of thing going oh, on yeah. too and so then you get all heated up and feel like that your manhood is being challenged and mm -hmm. you know and i think that there's a, a lot of yeah uh, a lot of things getting going on hormone wise, as far as I'm getting angry and lots of testosterone being thrown around and they end up killing these guys. Yeah. That, that's know? a, that's a very, for no point. reason. Yeah. For no reason. You I'm, know? Sure, I'm sure they would have let them take whatever the fuck they wanted. Yeah. They, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah they would have just said, okay, well, whatever, man, take whatever you want and get out yeah. of here and just leave us alone. Well, that, that ties in. I hadn't thought about something you just said, and that kind of ties into another question I had where I'm sure there, now that you mentioned it, there probably was a lot of, uh, by curious and like I like this and now I don't know how to feel about it. So I'm exactly. angry. Exactly. And, and, and I guarantee that's what happened with Kenneth. And I'm gonna say probably Tony was in the same situation or and and or Kenneth wouldn't have invited him out there in the first place. Right. That would be my guess. And I, well, I think you're right. And I think that's why you said, he, you know, shoots one of them five times in the head. Like that's a yeah. kill. Oh, it's you know? for sure. And, yeah, and for sure. I, I could see them. Okay. Now we're angry about these emotions we're feeling. And, and yeah. so, yeah, we're going to put you, yeah. but also he kills the fucking dogs. Oh, Man. I know. I know. Mm -hmm. Well, again, though, like you said, this is overkill. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely acting out here. This is over the top. There was no reason to shoot those dogs, especially since the dogs were not exactly the best guard dogs. Yeah, they like just it. wanted to sleep by the wood stove. They didn't um, weren't bothering anybody. So, I mean, maybe he thought they would. I don't know, man. But, you know, and they had the that other couple along, the guy who, you know, they didn't he they didn't really ever uh, file any charges against him. As far as I know, I couldn't find any record of it because he didn't really take part in any of it. He was just there, mm -hmm. even though Teresa said that he had taken some things, but she couldn't prove it. Right. But she, on the other hand, was like, whoa, <laughs> and yeah. immediately reported it. You know, I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. This is uh, I'm I'm yeah, I'm no, not out for this at all. I so we we're just hanging out at your mom's. Trailer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I thought we were just going to a party and we're going to huff some paint on the way. Way. Yeah. So, and oh, that uh, that probably didn't help the situation there either. What Talk you about burning some brain cells. You said you know? paint, paint, glue, and alcohol. Is that what? It's, what yeah, you said? yeah, yeah. And they were huffing it in the car, and I'm thinking, oh Oof. wow, yeah, paint thinner, glue, and alcohol. Damn. You know? Yeah. Nice. Oh, uh, gosh. So well, because God hadn't invented meth yet, I don't think. So <laughs> honestly, that's yeah. probably that's yeah. probably why. Yeah. Um. They eventually, uh, you know, turned themselves in, found guilty. 
Um, and then the items from the house are said to be cursed. You've so you've right. had some uh, experience with um, items that you did not like, and you enter yeah. place. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, stuff like that is is something I yeah I've encountered over the years with a couple of things. Um, there was a rock that came back from the Bell Witch Cave that definitely seemed to have bad luck. And mm-hmm. a friend of mine, after I told them about my experience, also picked up a rock from the Bell Witch Cave, even though I said what the heck? Yeah. Why, what are you doing? You know? And uh, she ended up, well, I didn't know that she'd done it until she was down there visiting the area and then sent me a picture. Uh, she'd gotten bit by some kind of insect and her entire face swelled up to like three times its size. And I'm like, oh my God. And I said, you took one of those rocks and you took a rock, didn't you? <laughs> you know? So she mailed it back, which is what I told her to do. And everything was fine after that. So, oh and I also gosh. know some friends who took something home recently from an abandoned uh, insane asylum and took something home. And then as soon as they took it home, uh, like both of their, you know, like one of their cars broke down, uh, they got in an accident, all kinds of things happened, like one boom, boom, boom. And I said, well, you got to get rid of that that bot you gotta get rid of that thing you brought home mm-hmm. and so what should we do and i said well i said i i if it was me i'd call rosemary ellen guiley but we can't do that anymore right. so she passed away get the said, but I'll, so i'll tell you what she told me to do in the same situation and they did so and hopefully it has helped i don't know but fingers mm, crossed fingers crossed yeah. i don't you know and i try not to be superstitious about stuff like that but i don't know i mean I guess I, I usually get into a situation where these things happen and I'm thinking, OK, so that's probably not why it's happening. But why take a chance? Yeah. Why you, not? Know, you know, why not just try everything? So, yeah. You know, exactly. time to get rid of it. So. I have a uh, you know, I, I'm a garbage person, so I dumpster dive for cool stuff. Um, <laughs> and um, I, uh, I have a mirror here that I took that's like. 35 pounds in this crazy oh, gold sure. frame and uh, it's really big and I, I looked up on the back of it because it still had like it had like torn paper on the back of it but it still had some numbers and um, I can't remember the company it's in my room over there but I've been thinking more and more about that and I was like I don't know where that <laughs> came from it was yeah. by the dumpster yeah. uh, no clue why somebody got rid of it it looks creepy as hell that's why I liked it but well I'll let me put it this way if you walk past it one evening and you see someone else looking out at you at it yeah. you don't want to get rid of it so <laughs> exactly. just just in case so yeah, or if I walk past it and I can't see myself. Well, that too. That would also be bad. So, but that might be a personal issue. That's uh, true. So I'm that might not have nothing to do with the mirror. So, uh, but yeah, had- there were a lot of stories that went around that people who had taken, who had bought and restored the things from the house, yeah. you know, were having bad luck. I mean, you know, I think the guy, the guy with the the young wife, uh-huh. okay, Already uh, off to a bad start. Yes. Puts her on the board of his company, starts a new company with her. And then the next thing you know, after they buy this stuff, they uh, they're charged with federal gun crimes. And <laughs> I think that, for that. I, yeah, I was going to say, I think <laughs> when you're already running a company where you can turn, uh, you know, automatic or semi-automatics into full automatic weapons by selling people these kits, you're asking for trouble, David yeah. Koresh. Yeah. So I think that, you know, they were already cruising to something bad. So, but I wondered, I wondered, I've not seen a photo. Um, I, 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 I'm kind of going to maybe do another dive and see if I can find one. I'd like to see what the bed looked like. Yeah. Because they say it was like this big, heavy 
carved wood bed. So what did it have like the devil on it or something? And if it does, where can I get one? You know, I don't know. I it just sounds cool, you know, but I don't know. But did you ever get to go out to the ruins or is anything still? No, I haven't been there. I know that there are still ruins there. I've seen some recent pictures. I have a friend who lived in that area who took some pictures for me a couple of years ago. Um, But it, um, you know, so there are still stones out there in the woods and stuff where it was. And people do still go out there. And, um, you know, people have gone out there, of course, because people go out there, you know, the devil worshipers uh-huh. go out there, you know, with that. So there's always that story going around. But a lot of people go out there because they've heard the rumors of it being haunted, mm-hmm. that they hear voices and, and screams and cries and things out there. So, you know, um, I don't know. Uh, people take bricks home from there, too, and end up with bad luck. So I would definitely not take anything home. So that's my word of advice. If anybody decides they want to go visit what's left of Corpsewood Manor, don't bring anything home. Yeah, uh, I'm just telling you, if you do. I guess, let me know. I can <laughs> yes. try and help you, but you know, I can't promise anything. I'm not this, I'm not a psychic. So yeah, or anything of, else, just a good rule of thumb. If it's not yours, don't it is, touch it, it is a good rule of thumb, man. So just don't, you know, if you go to a place like that, that's supposed to be awful. Don't bring anything home, man. Yeah. <laughs> just, right? just, just makes sense. So, uh, well, that was all that I had. And, um, cool. I don't, I, I got some good emails and stuff, but, um, a lot of them were kind of really long stories and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. So I don't have any ghostwriter stuff this, okay. uh, this week. Well, that's yet. all right. So, that's so, all right. So right into us. And that's yeah. Some cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, so yeah. And don't forget that drop Cody an email, drop us a text on the hotline if you like. Um, and thanks for listening. I mean, we'll be always grateful you guys are here. Um, I did a segment on Fox two news in st louis on friday and they really pushed the podcast on there Um, but i found out why because the guy that was the cameraman for that and the sound guy uh, was the no it was the guy that it was the guy that i met when i went out there for the exorcist thing Uh and he goes hey do you do a podcast right and i'm like yeah he goes i knew i recognized your voice so he came and did it so i think they he really must have been talking up the podcast but so they pushed it quite a bit so it was kind of fun to uh to get to do that and i was amazed at how many people watched it because all weekend so i had a tour on friday night and a river road tour on friday night and then a dinner last night and it was amazing the amount of people who said they'd seen it oh it was pretty funny yeah it was pretty funny so anyway guys thank you so much for listening uh please share the show with your friends and neighbors anybody that you know um turn them onto the show if you like it if you don't like it tell them not to listen so that's easy um so but if you do like the show or don't still leave us a review on (laughs) iTunes. Um, If you love the show, leave us a five-star review. If you hate the show, go ahead and leave us a review anyway, because jokes on you, the more reviews you leave, the better our ratings go. So we just keep getting higher and higher, even because of it, (laughs) because I mean, Hey, listen, listen, we got this guy who hates us and I don't know what we did to him anyway, but he hates us and he leaves us one star reviews and, and if you've looked at our reviews, even though they all have different names on them, you can tell by like the third grade grammar and spelling that it's all the same person. And I don't know what this trolls issue is, but it's funny because he keeps leaving his reviews and 
the more reviews you leave, the more people see our show. So thank you for doing that. We really appreciate it. But anyway, if you like the show, give us a five-star review or, or anywhere in between. If you're going to give us a one-star review, though, at least make it funny yeah, and coherent yeah, spell so that it's right. understandable. Uh, anyway, or send us an email or drop us a text on the hotline. Uh, one more time, that is 217-791-7859. You can also check us out on all of our social media. You can find Cody and I on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and really less and less often on TikTok. <laughs> I just don't have time for that right <laughs> now. But uh, And don't forget, use the discount code podcast when you're shopping for books and tours and events or whatever at AmericanHauntings.net. And you'll also find a link there for uh Cody shirt store, which is American hauntings, clothing.com. And you can use the same code there, just podcast and you get 10% off everything you order. Uh, I won't push Patreon again. Just check us out. Patreon.com American hauntings. And uh, we will see you guys in two weeks, unless you're a Patreon person, then you're going to hear from me in one week. So, because Patreon gets a show every week. So there every you go. Every week. They yep. pay for that privilege. All right. They do. This episode of the American Hauntings Podcast was written and performed by Troy Taylor. And it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. To find out more about the show, check out our website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com, which features show notes, links, and photographs that go along with each episode. Thanks again for listening. We couldn't and definitely wouldn't do it without you. So until next time, goodbye. Oh, so long. Yes. Sorry. So long. I just drifted <laughs> off there. I, I don't. Uh, sorry. I have so, the man bye. Me yeah. one paragraph yeah. to read and he <laughs> already just loses interest. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM.